0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The United in United Methodist Church is in question. This week, delegates at a conference in St. Louis voted to reinforce bans on same-sex marriage and LGBTQ clergy. Let's get some perspective from Denver's Isle of School of Theology. It's an official seminary for the church. After the vote, it proclaimed to its gay students, we stand with you. I should note, ILIF is a CPR underwriter. The school's president is Reverend Thomas Wolfe. He just got back from that general conference where the vote occurred. Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Ryan. good to be here.
0: Nice to see you. This is fascinating. You estimate that nearly a third of ILIF students identify as LGBTQ. So put me in their shoes right now. Say someone is openly gay. They're studying to become a pastor. What just changed in their life? Sure.
1: Well, the Book of Discipline uh, has not changed in some ways, because right now the Book of Discipline technically is restrictive. But there's been a lot of action um, that that uh, that individual conferences and congregations that all have a say in forwarding people for ministry and responding to their interest in becoming clergy— um, they uh, they they have continued to encourage members of the LGBTQ community in, in pockets all around the country.
0: Okay, so there are local decisions being made by individual churches and groups of churches to either give openly gay clergy the green light or the red light. That's
1: correct. Okay. That's correct. But now what has changed is the traditionalist plan that was adopted uh, two days ago in St. Louis. It now is is the same as we have, but this time with with real consequences and enforcement. Um, So it is now officially a very exclusive policy that the church has adopted.
0: Okay, so I want to go back to that fundamental question. What does that mean for students at ILIF who identify as LGBTQ?
1: That means their way forward into the United Methodist Church, those seeking ordination in the United Methodist Church, is severely hindered um, because of the adoption of the traditionalist plan as it is defined now.
0: You'll continue to educate
1: them? We absolutely will. We continue to stand with our students fully about this. Uh, we, are, uh, uh, we are an institution that years ago was given the, the gift of the church to have academic freedom and the expectation that we would be like all the other United Methodist-related higher education institutions, a, a, um, to be an inclusive community as well as having academic freedom. But are,
0: are you doing that now in violation of the Methodist
1: Church, I love is going to be Eiff in, in in this moment in history, and so um, i don 't see that educating every everybody who is qualified to come through our door to be educated um, i don 't see regardless of how they identify uh, in the LGBTQ community or however they identify i don 't see that that is in violation currently of the um, of,
0: of the church you don 't see it that way, but are there higher ups who might see it that way, and i don 't know slap you with some sort of fine or it could be it could
1: be uh, they, they could um, um, reduce our funding or whatever, but we have been working for three years in advance of this moment in time and to uh, change our whole funding structure and become less dependent on church funding. Because the reality is— What is is
0: your percentage of your budget that's based on church funding? 13
1: percent right now. 13
0: percent. Historically. And it's it's going
1: down. And we knew it was going to be going down. And our fear is also that it will dissuade people from applying to theological school, because if they identify in the LGBTQ community, they they may well— Give up or go to another denomination, and that's that's the tragedy of all of this.
0: Thirteen percent. Would you like it to be zero at some point?
1: At some. we're counting on it going down uh, okay. because because uh, the, the reality is there are going to be if this if this if this continues to be the direction of the church, uh, other things are going to be restructured that support that that, that will diminish our support.
0: I mean, restructured is probably a generous term. There has also been the term used, split or schism. So let me ask first, do you think that ILIF might separate from the United Methodist Church as an official seminary?
1: We have said all along that we will not leave the United Methodist connection unless it leaves us theologically or structurally and right now there's just too many variables that are under review based on this last decision parts of that decision might be considered unconstitutional by the governance through the governance of the church and there's another general conference in 2020 that will be addressing all of these issues as we go forward, and nothing changes, and this not, doesn't even go into effect until January first,
0: twenty twenty. So you're biding your time. It sounds like, to some extent, to see if this gets, uh, in a way, sorted out, resolved. To see where the chips land. We, we
1: have been we have been preparing for this possibility. We we knew that change was coming in the church. It's it, it's obvious. And, and our, our sights have been set on our students and and how we need to continue to advocate for them and their rightful place in the church.
0: And to the broader question, so it, it remains unclear if Iliff would separate from the Methodist church. That's correct. Do you foresee a schism in the church more generally?
1: There's all kinds of opinion out there about that now. And, and I think when the reality sets... In about what this decision means in reality, I think it's been a, a long time fight and it's gotten sort of the the implications of it have gotten lost in the argument. but when we begin to live into the realities of it, um, any number of possibilities could unfold
0: the realities of it mm-hmm. what do you mean
1: well the realities of do we really know what we have what what the church has accomplished with this decision? what does it mean is there no way that we can live? together in with different views on this and there and and we've also we this this group that worked the uh, through the commission on way forward that that brought these proposals to us you know i i think they found each other in new ways but the view is that nobody really ever changed their mind and and so we th- the group came out they had good conversations they had some integrity to it but, in the end of the day, nobody changed their
0: minds. You don't it's, think there was enough buy in and enough dialogue. I think this has been such
1: an old history that there's been so much at stake for people that 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 um we were we were already ensconced in in, in the in the division.
0: I want to play some audio of a layperson, Nancy DiNardo speaking at this general conference in St. Louis where the vote occurred. Uh, she wanted the church to stick to its traditional values. Mm-hmm.
2: My father was a very deeply devoted Christian and United Methodist, and he always told me, when in doubt, go back to God's Word. God's Word is faithful, and it is eternal. Matthew nineteen three through 6, tells us, And Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh?
0: So she refers to Scripture there. I've seen in social media comments uh, in the United Methodist community that people perceive this as a test. Are we going to stand with God and buy Scripture, or are we going to let Satan in? How do you have a dialogue with folks for whom this is an existential crisis?
1: I'm a third-generation clergy person in my family. And when we went to Scripture, we did not lose sight of the large arc of love that is in the gospel. So there is a difference that is flowing through the church about a more literal view and a more uh, encompassing view. Scripture is a living text, and it grows with us, and it comes into our cultural context and informs those, but isn't always against the cultural context.
0: Thank you for being with us, Reverend. Rev. Thomas Wolfe is president and CEO of the Iliff School of Theology in Denver. It's an official seminary of the United Methodist Church, which voted this week to restrict LGBTQ clergy and same-sex marriage. And we'll note again that Iliff is a CPR underwriter. Mm -hmm. Give a toddler an iPhone, and it's a good bet they'll instinctively know how to swipe it open and even access a game. But how that technology affects their developing brain, for better or for worse, is still relatively unknown. U.S. Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado wants to change that. This week, he reintroduced legislation in the new Congress to fund more research. But what do scientists know already that can help parents? And what are we most eager to find out? Dr. Michael Rich is an associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard. He's also the founder of the Center on Media and Child Health. Dr. Rich, welcome to the program. Thank you. I thought we might start with a practical question. This comes from a listener, as many of the questions in this conversation will. Mary Ellen Williams wrote, We gave our 10-year-old daughter a smartphone when we decided not to have a home phone. And uh, William says, based on that experience, she tells parents to wait as long as possible to give their child a smartphone. I imagine a lot of parents must think exactly this, delay, delay, delay. What do you think of that approach? I think that's very wise,
2: because what this is coming out of is an understanding, possibly from having the experience with what her 10-year-old daughter did after getting the phone, That they don't yet have the full impulse control, the executive functions developed to be able to self-regulate. And the problem with smartphones, of course, is that they're not just a phone. They are a computer, a full-service, Internet-connected computer. And kids very rarely use them as telephones.
0: You say that kids may lack impulse control and the ability to self-regulate. That sounds like me with a smartphone. (laughs) Um, Well, it sounds like a lot
2: of us with a smartphone. You know, they are quite seductive. Um, And one of the things that's very interesting about doing research in this field and actually offering clinical care to kids and adolescents and even adults who have problems regulating it, is that we're realizing that we're dealing with three moving targets. We're dealing with the developing child to adolescent to adult. We're dealing with a rapidly evolving environment, a technological environment. And the third thing is the evolution and transformation, really, of our behavior in response to this environment and to the tools that we have. Um, look at how differently people behave in public spaces, in elevators and buses. Um, no one looks at each other. No one has conversations with each other. Even young lovers walking hand in hand will be staring at their phones instead of each other. So we really need to understand how our behavior as individuals and as adults is changing us as a society and and within our own lives.
0: Why are those questions particularly important when it comes to children?
2: Well, the interesting thing is that we know from developmental neuroscience that the environment has a profound effect on the way our brains develop, um, that uh, we learned a lot from the Romanian orphanages um, where the kids had little stimulus, that their brains actually were very different than a child raised in a normal stimulating environment would be. So we are trying to understand what the effects on the brain development of children is when they are using these phones. And one of the things we do know is that they are relatively impoverished environments for the kind of brain stimulation and challenges that are raised by The natural environment to build strong brains.
0: So if you're as a parent counting on a phone to be as present and engaging for your kid as just playing with them yourself, uh, you're probably going down the wrong path.
2: Well, unfortunately, I think a lot of people use these phones as the electronic babysitter. And they want the illusion that there are apps that can be as good as a parent. But LAPs are better than apps. Um, (laughs) And I think that, you know, reading to your child, interacting with your child is a far richer experience than anything you could get on a
0: smartphone. Now, I suppose that won't come as a huge surprise to parents but uh, no
2: i don 't think I, I think common sense um, would say simply from watching these kids on these phones that it 's not the the best use of their time. The problem is that many parents use them to placate their children to keep their children quiet, to get their own work done, often on their own smartphones. And I think that what we are losing here is what is displaced by that use, what it, you know, how they can learn, for example, in a restaurant to wait until their food comes in and have a conversation instead of playing Angry Birds, or to have a moment of space, uh, something that we really abhor, which is boredom. And in boredom is where creativity and imagination happen. And we have come to a place in our society where we fill that empty space up with whatever feed, news feed, or social media or YouTube video is front and center right now. And we are losing a real opportunity, not just for brain development, but for new ways of thinking.
0: What do we know right now about the effect of the use of technology on a child's physiology. Does it affect their vision? Does it affect their ability to pay attention? Does it affect their, their, their brain growth? What, what can we say concretely right now?
2: Uh, one thing we can say concretely right now is that probably the first and most profound effect we are seeing is on sleep, that they are sleeping less Um, In terms of number of hours, but they are also sleeping less well for a couple of reasons. The first being that, you know, obviously the content um, that they are looking at is stimulating. The second being that these devices emit blue early morning light, which suppresses melatonin secretion, the hormone necessary to slip into sleep. But the third is that many kids are sleeping with their smartphones on vibrate under their pillows or on their bedside stand, and they will tell you every time it is their their alarm clock for waking up. The reality is they are basically on standby for that all-important LOL at 3 in the morning that their friend expects them to respond to. So they are not getting to stage 4 deep REM sleep, which is where we move what we experience today, including in algebra class and at the recess um, and the interaction with other kids, from our short-term memories into our learning centers. And so we are depriving them of – completing the circle of learning.
0: Is that the very definition of addiction?
2: No, actually, I I think addiction is a very dangerous word here for a couple of reasons. Number one is addiction triggers images of bums on skid row or junkies in a shooting gallery. It does not say my 10-year-old who has a hissy fit because he has to stop playing Fortnite and do homework um, is in this kind of trouble. So we're not going to get parents to bring their children to care as early um, as that. Now, we do have kids who get way down that slippery slope and drop out of school and get in trouble with the law and have all kinds of problems, but I don't want to wait until they get to that point for their parents to notice that there's a problem. So the word addiction is problematic in that sense from the stigma, but it also is Uh, a problem in terms of the fact that we don't have measurable physiologic changes either when using or withdrawing. We have behavioral changes for sure, but not physiologic changes. And then finally, when you talk about addiction to heroin, to alcohol, to tobacco, you're talking about a substance that you can be abstinent from and be okay, we cannot be abstinent from the interactive media environment. We need that to function in school, in work. And so what we need to do is not learn, not to detox and cut it out completely, hmm. but to learn to regulate ourselves, to use these very powerful tools in ways that are productive and help us move toward the people we want to be, um, but also to turn them off and to enter IRL in real life um,
0: from time to time. (laughs) Okay, we've talked about the possibility of delaying giving a child a smartphone until perhaps the last possible minute that a parent can envision. Give us, I don't know, one or two other safeguards or practical steps that you think parents should take. Well, I think we should consider flip phones for our kids.
2: You know, let's Take a step back and think about phones and, for that matter, all media, you know, laptops and tablets and and Facebook accounts, et cetera, as tools and very powerful tools. And just as we would not um, toss the car keys to a four-year-old and say, have at it, we should not be giving smartphones or any of these devices to the kids until they need that very powerful tool for the things that it does that nothing else can do. And till they have demonstrated to us that they can take responsibility for it. And then when we introduce it, we introduce it in a way where we very clearly and explicitly lay out the rules for how it should be used, be explicit about how it should not be used, and decide with the child so they have ownership in it what the consequences should be when they overstep. Hmm. Um, So – you know, just as we have learner's permit for the automobile, um, we should essentially have a learning period and learner's permit for these devices.
0: A flip phone as a learner's permit. How about one more?
2: I think <laughs> here's one that will uh, freak everybody out, but I'll tell you the people who've tried it absolutely love it and feel liberated. Okay. Consider as an entire family, not just the kids, taking a digital Sabbath. 24 hours, one day a week, everything off. OMG, <laughs> right? I mean, people say, how can I live without it? And interestingly, the people who have tried it in my practice tend to be people who are in the tech industry or the, or the entertainment industry because they know what goes into it. And when they try it, yes, there is a period going, oh, oh no, what's going on that I'm missing? You know, they the, the hit the wall of FOMO, fear of missing out. But then they realize how liberated they feel that they don't have to jump to every ping and that they can start to look up from their phones or their computers and see each other. And the concept of a Sabbath is really global, is really international. The sense that there's one day a week where you put aside worldly cares and you focus on what's important within yourself and in your close circle. And, you know, families are playing ball in the backyard and taking walks and just talking to each other. And I think that one of the real dangers of smartphones is that it denies us the ability to be present for each other.
0: If the National Institutes of Health gets an injection of funding to study the relationship between children and media, and, you know, that's all sorts of things. It's smartphones, it's, it's apps, it's websites, it's social media. It's games. It's games. Yeah. What? Question, do you most hope to answer? What are you sort of burning to learn?
2: How can we use these tools in ways that make us more human? What do you mean? How can we be better for ourselves and each other in terms of learning, in terms of social emotional connectedness, in terms of being present in the world um, for ourselves, for our children? And how can we make the space in our busy lives and in our busy infosphere to dream and to think new things?
0: This is fascinating. In other words, you want the National Institutes of Health not to study the technology itself, but in a way to study ways of getting away from it.
2: No, I want the National Institutes of Health to study us, Um, to study us and how we are changed by sort of mindless use of these technologies, and how we might direct those changes in positive ways by mindful use of these tools, including knowing when to turn them off.
0: Which gets me to uh, the topic of how access to smartphones in particular might improve things for our children, because I, I I don't want to make this the boogeyman either i mean absolutely used, not we used to and use the television as the babysitter and i could we argued that that these phones are are more interactive and might teach us something astronomy for instance
2: Ab- absolutely yeah. i think that the, yeah and and i think that it's a cop-out to point at the technology as the problem huh. um as as that wise philosopher pogo once said we have met the enemy and he is us and we need to look at ourselves and how we use even television, but also these interactive tools in ways that promote um, learning. Um, One of the great things that we can do is that grandma and grandpa can interact with even very young children, infants and toddlers. Once they've established themselves in the child's life, I don't want, I don't think they should introduce themselves on the tablet. But once you know grandma and grandpa, this is a great chance to interact, um, in brief periods of time that actually hold the child's attention. Um, there are. Did you mean fabulous, like over
0: FaceTime or something?
2: Absolutely. Uh-huh. FaceTime or Skype. Yeah. And, and, um, but, but there are also experiences that can be had. We can, use social media to connect with people who we don't understand or know. Um, it's going to be a lot harder for political leaders to send young people to war against a country that historically they didn't know. If they are busy on social media with each other, comparing the fact that they're both 18-year-olds, you know, in different parts of the world who speak different languages and have different cultures, but have so much in common. And so I think that If we can, in a mindful way, use social media to connect in authentic ways with each other, which includes showing our vulnerabilities, showing our fears, showing our needs to each other, not just showing off, you know, what a great vacation I'm on or what a good-looking boyfriend I have. I think that we can make this a tool for
0: peace. That is Dr. Michael Rich, founder of the Center on Media and Child Health at Harvard. We first spoke in August when U.S. Senator Michael Bennett introduced a measure to research the impact of technology on children. Bennett reintroduced that bill this week in the new Congress. And that's Colorado Matters for today. From CPR News, I'm Ryan Warner.